Anytime you're ready. All right. Welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn. And I'm Laura. And is there anything we want to talk about today before we get started? No, not really. What exciting uh, things are you doing with the chickens? Oh, we're building the coop board. Ooh, cool. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. That's going to be so nice. Yeah, we nice when it's done, we won't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, they had the when I would stay in at the bed and breakfast, they had chickens towards the end of my reign there, so to speak, and they had like they had just went on ahead and bought. They had just gone on ahead and bought like a like a, a homemade chicken coop. Uh-huh. And I mean, it looked so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like. This was supposed to be a really fancy place to stay, but there was this, like, kind of off-brand chicken coop behind their house, and it was kind of like, eh. eh. kind of janky. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have anything to say either. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had such exciting lives. T- Tiffany's last day was Friday. Oh, I'm sure you were so sad about that. I was saddened. I was very saddened. Yeah. Everyone was crying. Oh, we were crying. Yeah. I was in the corner crying and rocking back and forth. Yeah. But you do that normally just because you were there. I do that anyway because I was there. Yeah. That's why I was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, you ready to start, I guess? Yeah. Me too. Let's jump right into this. Let's jump in. Yeah. Uh, So, where we left off last time, um, the Elliot Ness had been, had officially been given charge of the investigation. Right. Okay. So, Elliot Ness is on the case. He is on the case. Let's see how well that goes. Spoiler, not that well. All right. Yeah. I'm not hoping for much. No. Um, so another, so coincidentally, another officer was given the role of lead investigator by the chief of police right about that same time. And our old friend, Peter Merlot, that we talked about last week for like a hot second, um, he had been born in Ukraine and had immigrated to America as a teenager. He spoke several Eastern European languages so he could converse with many of the residents of Kingsbury Run. Um, he had been in the army and after his discharge had found the discipline of police life to be to his liking. He was a no nonsense, no nonsense cop who gave 200% and looked down on people who only gave 100%. Oh, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> He had no political savvy at all. Uh, he chose a person named Martin Zalewski as his partner on the case. Don't get too attached to that. Okay. Either. Don't get too attached to that. <laughs> he and Elliot Ness, uh, Peter Merlo and Elliot Ness are the two officials most commonly associated with the case. So, the day after he took charge of the case, Elliot Ness summoned Merlot to his office and asked Merlot where he was in the investigation. Uh, 
And Merlo was pretty nonplussed. And he responded that since he'd only been on the case for three days, he was still looking over the files. <laughs> well, considering I've only been at this for three days, yeah. I'm still looking at the files, yeah. okay? Okay. What do you expect from me, Elliot? Yeah. And it put, so it put their relationship on a bad footing from the start. And the whole meeting was an indication of just how much pressure the Elliot Ness and everyone else was to see that the case got solved. Um, well, a couple people are still freaking out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, suddenly, the police in Newcastle, Pennsylvania... Com- communicated to the Cleveland detectives that they had had a series of murders in their town that had lasted for at least 10 years and had resulted in at least seven murders. Oh, my. The murders had all been committed in an area of swampland, much like Kingsbury Run. In fact, it was called the Murder Swamp. <laughs> <laughs> Very acclimated. Yeah. At first, the police in Newcastle had thought that the murders were mob killings because the mob often often dumped victims in the same area where these bodies were found. Um, during the last week of June 1936, the only permanent resident of the swamp, who was Oscar Vukovic, had seen birds hovering over a string of abandoned boxcars. So he notified railroad police who investigated um, and found the naked, headless body of a man lying face down on top of some newspapers, one of them from Cleveland. Uh, Bloodstained clothes were found nearby. The decapitation was done neatly and the head was missing. The similarities were so strong that Elliot Ness sent his personal assistant, John Flynn, to Newcastle. He was shown around by local authorities, but when he returned to Cleveland, he told Ness that he wasn't sure if the murder had been committed by the same person. Merlo, however, felt certain that that they were. Yeah, it kind of sounds very similar. Yeah. Uh, With no real leads, Coroner Pierce from Cleveland organized a torso clinic, quote-unquote, where everyone involved in the case could get together and exchange ideas. Ness, the chief of police, and several outside experts all attended. At the end of the session, the police chiefs declared they were no further forward than when they first found the two bodies at Jackass Hill. Oh, Um, my lord. However, the fact that they felt that they should do something like this at all is probably a sign of how desperate they were for any progress. Yeah. Yeah, so Ness created his own band of investigators, and whereas his band in Chicago had been called the Untouchables, these were called the Unknowns, who operated completely off the radar and who were known only to him. So there was a there was a public face of the investigation featuring Merlo and Zalewski and a hidden face led and controlled by Elliot Ness. Okay. So, all right. So the last, so in June of 1936, the police from Newcastle had contacted the Cleveland police. So now we go to February 23rd, 1937. 
Um, okay, so we, we went a couple of months. A couple of months, but not hugely long. Like, this guy, no. has, this guy has crammed a lot of killing into a very short amount of time. Oh, my God. Okay, so a man named Robert Smith was walking on the Lake Erie shore in the same spot where his neighbor had been walking two and a half years earlier gathering driftwood and he saw something that looked like a dead dog or a dead sheep but when he got closer he saw that it was part of a female torso so he called police okay yeah so another are you okay boy oh no ma'am no ma'am you are not okay ma'am yeah where is your head and the rest of you and the rest of you yeah um Lieutenant William Sargent arrived and confirmed the find as a body part, which I'm sure was not hard. And he was soon right. follow- and he was soon followed by detectives Joseph Sweeney and our old pal Orly May, as well as the chief of police and several other officers. There was no sign of where the body had been dumped in the water. It could have been anywhere within several miles of the lakeshore. Um, this victim was dead before the decapitation and the act showed multiple hesitations, which led to questions over whether this was an actual victim. It doesn't seem like this one is. That would, that would be, yeah. Not because the other ones have been pretty self-assured movements. Right. They've been pretty neat. Yeah. Um, almost three months later, Howard Yoakum, who was working at the Great Lakes Exhibition, was testing a swan boat when he found the lower half of a torso in the lake. At the morgue, the new coroner, Samuel Gerber, who later became famous for his like testimony in the um, Sam Shepard murder. Oh, okay. the, yeah. Um, put the two halves together and they were a perfect match and he speculated that both parts were put into the water at the same time and the less floaty parts were still at the bottom of the lake so this, okay. yeah, this second lady of the lake was victim number seven alright so we advance now less than four months on June 6, okay. 1937, 14-year-old Russell Lauer, and this is another one of those cases where, like, a kid finds something. Yeah, that's always terrible. It happens a lot in this case, and I mean... It seems like all of them have been found by kids, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Kids uh, just trying to enjoy their day, playing. Yep. Um... He was on his way home when he saw a group of people crowded around uh, on a spot next to the Cuyahoga River. Um, a tugboat crewman had disappeared there a couple of days ago, and searchers were still looking for his body. So, Russell watched for a while and then began walking home. Uh, part of his walk crossed a piece of wasteland called Stone's Levee, which was under the Carnegie Lorraine Bridge. And Russell was passing the second abutment of the bridge when he saw something glinting from under a pile of dirt and debris. He got closer and realized it was gold teeth. Oh, yeah. 
So Detective Orly May, our old pal, once again answered the call along with the chief of police and other policemen and detectives. Um, while the skull was being photographed, the police searched the area and found a wool cap with a tassel, a sleeve from a woman's dress, and a curly toupee. When police, okay. yeah, when police moved that, they found a burlap bag underneath with torso bones and a black mass inside it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. okay. When the head and bones arrived at the morgue, Coroner Gerber called in an anatomy professor to aid his pathologist with the examination. They declared that the bones belonged to an African-American woman, about 30 to 40, very petite. Um, the, quote, curly toupee was actually part of the skin of the skull. And the black oh mass, my. yeah, and the black mass was badly decomposed tissue. Uh. The bones showed signs of cut, hacking and cutting, indicating that this probably was one of the butcher's victims. Um, the victim had been dead about a year, which matched, oh. yeah, which matched the age of a piece of newspaper left with the body. Oh my god. <clears throat> the only way they could possibly find the identity of the victim was by a match with dental work. And after investigation, Mer Merlo believed he'd found an identity for this victim, Rose Wallace. Oh. Her age, appearance, and dental work matched that matched those of the victim, but Rose Wallace had disappeared about two to three months after the victim was dead, according uh -huh. to the medical examination. Merlo still accepted well, Yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Merlo still accepted this identification though. <laughs> because at least it gave him something to work with and investigate. Okay, Merlo. Yeah. Others, however, yeah. person, but yeah. yeah. So others, however, were skeptical, and Coroner Gerber flatly denied it was her. Yeah, considering that this person was dead for two months before yeah, exactly. Rose even went missing. Right, right. However, well, you don't have to be like yeah, yeah. fucking you Sherlock Holmes to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. Uh. Exactly. However, in April of 1938, a young black man walked into the police station saying he could possibly identify the woman. So he looked over the notes the police had made about the victim, including the dental work, and proclaimed that that was his mother, Rose Wallace. So on the afternoon of her disappearance, she had been doing laundry when a friend came, into, came to her and said that an unidentified man wanted to see her at a certain bar. Later, she was seen leaving the bar with a man named Bob and heading for a party. And after that, she was seen in a car with three white men. <coughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. After that, she disappeared. No good come out of being with three white men. Yeah. No. No. Or even one, usually. Um, yeah, and that's the truth. Yeah. Um, so Merlo tried to connect Rose Wallace to other victims. Um, she had had a relationship with, I mean, okay, here goes another name. She had had a relationship with a man named One-Armed Willie. 
Yeah. <laughs> Distant cousin of one-eyed Willie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he had had an argument with Flo Palillo, the second victim, or third victim, days before she'd been murdered. But Merlo couldn't quite make the threads to come together. So, uh, I can imagine him standing there with his little board and the red lines. Yeah. The strings just don't quite touch. Nope. And he's like, ah! Yeah. Why won't they touch? Yeah. He's doing, <laughs> I mean, you know that Pepe Sylvia meme from It's Always Sunny. Yeah, that's yeah. what I came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The victim who might have been Rose Wallace was victim number eight. Oh, my. All right. So, in May 1937, uh, or 38, I got all my years mixed up with this. Anyway, May 1938, um, Ohio Governor Martin Davey had called out the Ohio National Guard on behalf of the Cleveland mayor and sheriff. Um, On July 6th, the... uh, there had been there was like striking action, which doesn't really affect our story. But and anyway, on July sixth, the one hundred forty seventh Infantry took up position in the Flats area at a steel company that was having a strike. Um, so at five thirty a.m., Private John Smith saw something white bobbing in the waters of the Cuyahoga, but wasn't sure what the what the object was. I mean, at this point, if you see something bobbing in the water, it's probably a body. It's probably a body part, yeah. Uh, I mean, at this point. The same time Private Edgar Steinbrecher walked out onto the West 3rd Street Bridge to watch a tug go by when he saw the lower half of a male torso in the water. But, so this was at 5.30, but no one called the police until 10 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's like they didn't even know that there was like a series of murders and if they saw something weird in the water maybe they should call the cops I don't know he really had to watch that tugboat yeah I mean that was the important thing that was that was the top priority was watching that tugboat, that tugboat. Toot, toot. Uh, the police report stated that Smith didn't think anything of his sighting until later, when he, I forgot this part totally, when he and another private found a floating burlap bag containing the upper half of the torso. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't explain why Steinbrecher signing didn't get called in, but, you know, at this rate. It's a, it's a wonder anything got called in. Yeah. Uh, eventually, the National Guard officer in charge, Captain Ratterman, was told about the sightings. He then called the police, whereupon our old pals, Detectives Orly May and Emil Musil, came to the scene. Um, a call was made to the Coast Guard, and Captain Crapo, that's his name, dispatched... <laughs> C-R-A-P-O, Crapo. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah. The names. The names. Uh, 
anyway, Captain Cra- our Earl Pal Captain Crapo dispa- dispatched a motorboat to retrieve the lower torso. Various body parts turned up along the Cuyahoga River. Um, the burlap bag in which the upper torso rested also contained a single silk stocking, which had a run in it. And embedded in the stocking were a dog hair and several short blonde human hairs. Uh. Yeah. So, Detective Merlot bought, brought a pathologist from City Hospital to the morgue. Um, because Edward Andrassy was the victim they knew the most about, and because he had worked at City Hospital several times... Merlo still hoped that he could find some connection between the killer, Andrassy, and the hospital. He asked the city hospital pathologist if he could recognize anything in the style of cutting as compared to styles of anyone working at the hospital. Um, The pathologist said it wasn't familiar to him, but that the killer had to have some anatomical knowledge. Right, and... Not be squeamish. Right. Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're chopping up bodies and shit. You yeah. can't be squeamish. Well, and also some place to drain them. Right. Like, some of them. Where, like, where's all the blood from yeah. this? You would think someone would have found, yeah. like, a staging scene. Right. Exactly. Somewhere exactly. where they chop them all up. Yeah. So, the autopsy showed that the latest victim um, was about 40 years old, 5'8 to 5'10, and about 150 pounds. Um, This victim had not been castrated, but the killer's level of violence was increasing. There were multiple hacking marks and several organs had been removed. Yeah, so this was victim number nine. So, in August, the uh, National Association of Coroners had its convention in Cleveland. So, Coroner Gerber put together a display of autopsy photos of all the victims. Um, He hoped that one of the attendees would spot a pattern or a clue that the people closer to the case had missed. But, however, no one came forward with any ideas. Um, yeah. So, but it was a good try, you know. Yeah, a for effort. Yeah. I mean, like, we'll give them a B. Yeah. For the effort there. Yeah. It was the same with that, like, torso seminar. Like, at least they were trying. At least yeah. They something. Um, so, yeah. If they to understand, they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, in the aftermath of all the killings, Merlo and Zalewski basically had three types of leads that they followed. One was weird people in the Kingsbury Run area. Two was weird doctors. And three was, third was people who were specifically mentioned to them through tips. Okay. Um, the weird third, doctors. Yeah, weird doctors. Yeah, <laughs> weird doctors. I mean, they're all kind of that way. Um, 
The third category was by far the largest. They investigated a man who was seen looking at Jackass Hill through binoculars before the first two victims were found. They investigate. Okay, get ready. Just get ready. Gird yourself. Oh, God. Okay. 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 They investigated a man who would ejaculate onto a freshly cut chicken's neck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Was he like jerking it with one hand and chopping with the other hand? And oh from lord, what I, from what I read, he would go to prostitutes, and that's what he asked them to do was cut the chicken's neck. Oh my god! Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> Cleveland in the 30s. Okay. 30 stinks, I guess. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know, what to, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that was just, you know. All right. They investigated a supposed voodoo cult, and they investigated several undertakers. Um... No evidence ever came from any of these leads. And even when they investigated doctors, it was clear that none of those were the torso killer. And not even the voodoo cult had any leads? Not lead. even the voodoo cult. Man. It sounds like we need to stop being prejudiced. and Yeah, really. <laughs> exactly. Maybe the voodoo cult's not as bad as a serial killer. The booty cult didn't hurt anyone. (laughs) Go figure. So, in April 1938, uh, a a Works Progress Administration worker named Charles Morosky was walking down a hill in the Flats area going to visit a man who had set up camp close to the river. As he got close to a sewer drain, he realized that what he thought was a dead fish was actually a human leg severed at the knee and ankle. So the killer had been quiet for nine months before this. Oh, my God. Um, Detective Joseph Sweeney and the head of the Scientific Bureau arrived to examine the leg. They couldn't really tell if it was a man or a woman's or if it was the left or right leg. So I guess the foot wasn't I mean attached. yeah I there's know. no foot and there's nothing yeah. you basically just got yeah. the cat right there let me just say that my leg is fat as fuck so I'm sure people would <laughs> be like oh that's a guy's leg <laughs> that's totally a guy's leg it's totally um, however the skin was very delicate so they thought it was probably a woman's leg uh, Orly May and Emil Musel once again came out to investigate the area they spent hours traveling up and down the river and looking for more body parts. Um, meanwhile, the leg arrived at the morgue where Coroner Gerber agreed that it was a woman's leg, a left one, and <laughs> the body the body had been killed within the previous week. Okay, so that's one of the freshest ones we've found so yeah. far. Yeah. So the next day, the police looked all over the area for more body parts but found nothing. Um, 
While the police waited to see if anything would turn, more would turn up, Merlo and his partner Selevsky allowed a tiny disagreement to blow up into a huge issue that left the two partners who'd worked together for months with a rift that could not be healed. Like William and Harry, I guess. Also, okay. yeah. Also, Elliot Ness's assistant uh, announced to the press that he wanted another expert to check Coroner Gerber's work on the leg. And Gerber was, of course, furious and offended that his work was being second-guessed. You don't think I know what I'm doing? Yeah, you don't think I know a leg when I see one? I know what a woman's left I leg looks like when I see it. Even if I just see the caps. Yeah, I know what a woman's left leg looks like. I know what a woman's left leg looks like. Um, on May 2nd, uh, 1938, so probably less than a month later, yeah. two people at one of the bridges saw a thigh in the water. Uh, detectives pulled it out of the water, then uh, found a burlap sack. So, of course, inside the sack, they found the decomposed remains of uh, two halves of a headless torso, another thigh, and a foot. Um, oh, that's, yeah. that's just lovely. Coroner Gerber arrived and took the items to the morgue where it was indeed identified as a female. Um, there had been enough morphine in her system to cause unconsciousness, perhaps death. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, would narrow down the list of suspects considerably because who has morphine? Right. Doctors. Doctors, yeah. Um, a tugboat captain reported seeing two burlap bags in the river on April 26th. Police theorized that the second bag contained the head, so Merlot searched assiduously for it, but it was never recovered. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, uh, this unidentified body was victim number 10. We're in double digits. Oh, um, I'm running out of fingers. Yeah. On August 26, 1938, three African-American men, James Dawson, Edward Smith, and James McShack, um, were searching a dumping ground at the end of the newly built Lakeshore Drive, where a lot of the refuse from the Great Lakes Exposition had been dumped. Because they made their living livings looking for scrap metal to sell. Yeah, so Dawson went to get a truck and he passed by a little gully uh, where he saw uh, something like a coat sticking up out of the rubble. He, yeah, he went to investigate and saw a bundle of clothing covered by a pile of rocks. The smell coming from the bundle was putrid. The men moved some of the rocks and saw human bones. The men got the attention of the first policeman they could find, Patrolman Martin Connor, who put in the call to headquarters. And soon the area was crawling with cops as well as the coroner. They discovered... Which is what they tried to avoid. Yeah. They discovered a torso wrapped in butcher's paper, then a man's coat, then a patchwork quilt. 
Okay. Uh, under the torso, they found two thighs held together by a rubber band. Also, what? Yeah, also wrapped in butcher's paper. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Five feet away was another wrapped patch passage, package, and this contained a head which had some long, light brown hairs attached to it. Oh. Uh, a nearby box, which was made up of two different food containers, contained the arms and the lower legs. And this was the first time in a long time that the entire victim was was found. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, parts of the skin seemed to be mummified, possibly even frozen. Uh. Yeah. The skin was so decomposed that no prints could be taken, and there were very few clues to the body's identity. The autopsy showed that the body was a woman, about 35, weighing 125 pounds and about 5 foot 4. Oh, my. Um, so, so get ready. Many of the police had left the area by late afternoon. However, at 5.30 that evening, Todd and Cecilia Bartholomew were passing by the site and noticed all the police and onlookers milling about the dump site. They got home and learned that a new torso victim had been found. So what did they do? They decided to go back and see what they could see. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. He parked the car, and they got out of the car to observe, and while they were there, he began to notice a putrid odor in the area, coming from a shallow depression in the ground. He investigated and saw human bones. The police came to that area and found a can near the hole, which contained a human skull, plus they found pelvis and backbones. There was even less to go on with this victim. It was a white male, about 35, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 8, about 140 pounds, dead about 7 to 9 months. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, in this case, there were three pieces of evidence that could possibly help the investigation. The quilt, the boxes, and the can. Um, right. The can proved impossible to trace to any locations, but the boxes were a bit different. Um, one of them was delivered to one particular fish market, and a clerk there remembered an odd man named Gus who picked up some discarded boxes earlier in the summer. He wore a long coat in the summer despite the heat. Uh-huh. Another carton had been shipped to Cleveland in June, so both boxes were only in the city for a couple of months, but the second victim had been dead for seven to nine months. Where had the box bones been for then, and had the killer repackaged the bones to make them more obvious? Uh-huh. The quilt also had a provenance to it. It had been sold to the Scoville Rag and Paper Company, close to where Flo Palilla and Rose Wallace, if that was her, disappeared. It had to have been either taken by someone who worked there or stolen off the company's loading dock. Uh, Why get a really noticeable quilt when something less obtrusive would do, and why steal it? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Yeah. 
unless you were just totally insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, additional clues were brought forward. A mass of light brown hair found in a tin box and a woman's stained dress, slip, stocking, and underwear. These clues, however, led nowhere. Of course not. Yeah. Damn. Um, so the victims who were all unclaimed were turned over to the West, which was pretty much most of them, were turned over to the Western Reserve University Medical School. At one point, T. Wingate Todd, the professor of anatomy and physical anthropology, called the head of the scientific bureau to tell him that he felt that one of the victims he just found possibly wasn't a torso victim because they'd been embalmed. Neither the medical examiner nor Samuel Gerber had recorded that this victim was embalmed. Um, No record survives of any further examination of the victim, but Merlot doesn't consider this victim as one of the torso victims. Um, Officially, however, these were victims 11 and 12. Okay. So... um, Okay, this is a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, no. But, yeah. But, so Elliot Ness was feeling pressure from all sides as the police watched lead after meagerly evaporate. So he decided upon a course of action that actually may have sabotaged his entire career. And right, and actually, rightfully so. But yeah, um, early in the morning of August eighteenth, he led a squad, and very early, it was like midnight, one a.m. That kind of early, he led a squad of police and firemen into the shanty towns of Kingsbury Run. Um, they arrested all the vagrants, searched their homes, piled all the men's belongings into a pile, and set. Everything on fire. Holy shit. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So, much of the goodwill he had enjoyed, as you can imagine, evaporated in the face of such draconian measures. Yeah, I would (laughs) hope so. And days later, he orchestrated another operation of dubious legality. He had police officers pretend to be fire wardens doing fire inspections. And they searched all the residences within a 10 square mile area of Kingsbury Run. And in all these searches, absolutely nothing was found. Well, of course not. Yeah. From this point on, Ness became less and less popular in Cleveland. Yeah, because he was going crazy. Yeah. Uh, however, coincidentally or not, the deaths in Cleveland did stop. Okay. So, uh, Merlo kept investigating in his spare time, but as the days passed and as he was assigned uh, to other cases, the torso killings faded from memory. Yeah, because those were certainly new right. to forget yeah. about. Right. However, on May 3rd, 1940, suddenly the murders came back into focus because three railroad cars in McKees Rock, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh, 
were waiting for the scrapyard. Railroad workers were investigating the area before they were scrapped when they opened the car and found the dismembered corpse of a man. No, yeah, no head, body parts wrapped separately in burlap. And in the next car, the railroad men found another body. No head, body parts wrapped in burlap. In the third car, they found another body. Headless, but this time not dismembered. And with the word Nazi carved in the chest with an inverted Z. Yeah. Okay. So, the victims had been sleeping on newspapers, and the killer tried to burn the bodies by setting the papers on fire. Um, The bodies had been cut by someone with anatomical knowledge. They'd been dead about two months, and at that time, the boxcars had been in Youngstown, Ohio. The heads were never found. The only evidence the police found were a bloody footprint, uh, a bloody blunt seriously (laughs) between 50 and 75 dark hairs and one blonde hair this person is just leaving hair everywhere yep whether it's like their own hair it's someone else's hair they like dog hair yeah well, there's, and the blonde hair, like, that's not the first blonde, yeah. Um, so the killing, oh, wait, one of the victim. well, one of the victims was identified as James Nicholson, a 29-year-old drifter, but I don't think that really pushed anything farther. Um, right. The killings were similar enough to the torso killings that several officials from Cleveland went to the scene to see for themselves. Um, Detective Merlo had no doubts in his mind. He told the press that he was sure they were all related, and he put the killer's death toll at 2023. But other, yeah, other Cleveland authorities were skeptical. Um, so bodies in various pieces continued to turn up in the regions around Cleveland. Uh, yeah. Body parts washing up every day. Like, oh, there's a pie today. Oh, it's a chest. It's fine. It's all good. Um, A headless Wallace Lloyd Brown was found in a dump along the Monongahela River in 1939. In 1941, two amputated legs floated down the Ohio River near Pittsburgh. Um, in 1942, the decapitated body of Ernest Alonzo was pulled out of the Monongahela. In 1945, two headless male bodies were found in the Hudson River in New York City. And in that same year, the headless body of Lydia Thompson was found in a swamp in Pontiac, Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, in 1937, Peter Merlot had spent his two-week vacation exploring the swamps of Newcastle uh, with a local constable who was in his 70s and who knew the history of the area and of the killings from the first one in 1921. 
Uh, so Merlo had always wanted to go undercover as a hobo and ride the rails. Oh, and in oh. June, yeah. And that's where that epic picture of him in uh, his hobo costume comes from. In June of 1940, Mer- Merlo convinced his boss to allow him to do that. Um, it took him a while to find. Please, I want to be. I want to undercover as a hobo. Please, I just want to be a hobo. I've I always just... wanted to be a hobo. All right. Bye. All right. Just yeah. Just go. Just do it. Get you to shut up. Just go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my stick. I'm going to get my bag. I'm going to, I'm going to grow my beard out. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to put some dirt on my face. Oh yeah. I won't have to shower. I won't have the wife telling me what to do. So Merlo took a while to find someone who was willing to accompany him, but finally Patroman Frank Burrell agreed. So he actually convinced someone else to do this with him. Hey, hey, you want to be a hobo with me? Yeah, baby. Let's go. Let's go. We're hitting the rails, literally. Uh, on July 14th, Merlo and Varel, dressed like the Depression-era victims for whom they hoped to pass hopped onto a train in Youngstown, Ohio, and rode to Newcastle, Pennsylvania. They rode the rails for a few weeks, trying to find out as much as they could from the hobos they talked to. On August 5th, the experiment came to a halt uh, when Patrolman Varel was recalled to Cleveland due to a serious illness his father had. So, as no more murders in Cleveland happened, the people investigating the case were reassigned. Uh, but Merlo, even when he had other cases, continued to look into leads after work and on his days off. Um, so, this is the creepiest. This is one of the creepiest parts. Okay. All right. In the summer of 1950, a man employees would call the sunbather came to the Norris Brothers Company and sunbathed for six weeks on a pile of steel girders at one corner of the yard. Okay. Suddenly, he disappeared about the time the workers noticed nauseating smells coming from the pile of girders. Okay. Yeah. I'm starting to, like, put two and two together here. Yeah. Um, on August 1950, two men walking close to the moving company discovered a decaying human leg. Uh, when police arrived, they investigated the area around the girders and discovered a dismembered male torso, two arms, and one leg. The victim had been dead for about six to eight weeks, which was around the time that the sunbather, quote-unquote, had started hanging out on the girders. Yeah. It took a few weeks, but police identified the victim as Robert Robertson, a 44-year-old unemployed man who'd had several run-ins with the police. He'd had a stroke several years earlier, which had left him increasingly unable to hold down a job or keep up relationships with his family. And the investigation into the death went the way of the other murder investigations. Even when they had the identity, leads fizzled out, and eventually the police let the case lapse. 
And this That's was crazy. officially victim number 13. Oh, God. So I'm going to stop there. Oh. And then next week is going to be theories. Theories and suspects. All right. Yeah. It's a three-parter. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. All right. A lot of death. A lot of badness, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm surprised this one isn't more talked about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen a couple of, like, TV shows about it. And, like, BuzzFeed Unsolved did a show about it. Uh-huh. But, like, not huge amounts. I mean, it's it's way more known, obviously, in the Cleveland area. And that was where, where I first heard about it. Right. I think we were like we were I think we were at a bookstore uh in the area because when we were visiting Joe's family that's from up around there and there was a book about it and I was like, Hmm, let me get this and read about it. Holy that's shit <laughs> <laughs> Holy God, this is horrible. Yeah. I mean, I mean this is up there with like I don't even know. It's just bodies popping up all over the place. Yeah. Bodies and pieces of bodies. That's the, to me, yeah. that's the worst part. Is like, imagine if you, like, were the Andrassies and the police came to you and they were like, well, we have parts of your son, you know? Well, yeah, that'd be. Or Rose Wallace's son. Well, we have parts of your mom. I mean, we don't have the whole thing, but we got parts of her. Like, like Jesus. The road, like, we don't even know if it's really is your mom, but yeah. we got parts of her. Yeah. It might be her. It, it might not be her. her. Yeah. Horrible. Oh, man, that is horrible. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. More if you want to talk to us about how horrible it is. Yeah, you can email us. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kentucky at gmail.com. Yeah. And we have a Twitter. And, and an Instagram. Instagram. And those are both at Creepy Kentucky. And uh, I think the new series of What We Do in the Shadows comes out in July, right? Yes. Yeah. I yeah. am most excited. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Who are we going to What the Hell? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I kind of want to, what the hell, well, I kind of want to have what the hell Elliot Ness for doing all that stuff at the uh, yeah. homeless camp, because that was really, yeah, me too. yeah, that was, that was really cruel. For. That was really cruel. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. gets a what the hell. Yeah. And they even took those people's pets away from them. That, that yeah, yeah, that's. That's unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Elliot Ness in three, two, one. Elliot, Elliot Ness. Ness. What, what the hell? hell? What the hell, man? Yeah, really. <laughs>